Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm back on Zoom with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. For this episode, we are delighted to introduce the American writer Holly George Warren, all the way from upstate New York. Hi, Holly. Hello from the Catskill Mountains and the Hudson Valley to all my pals <laughs> out there in podcast land. Very nice. Holly, it's hard to know how to introduce you since you've done and written so much in in your career as both a writer and editor. So for right now, I'm just going to introduce you uh, as the author of 16 great books, and we're going to talk about the latest one, your Janis Joplin biography, in a little while. First, though, will you tell us something about where you grew up and how you fell in love with music? I grew up in a little tiny town in North Carolina, which was a dry county, very Bible Belt. Uh, We had one little AM radio station, if anybody remembers what AM is, Mm -hmm. that went off the air at like six o'clock or something. And I think they mostly just played religious music and maybe some country and Western, which of course, my mom being from Appalachia, growing up on like quarter family type style music, you know, of course I hated that, (laughs) but guess what? I discovered the wonders of clear channel. Um, I would be going to bed at night and next to my bed was my uh, baby blue AM clock radio. And one night when I was about third grade, I just happened to like, Oh, what if, you know, what else is on, you know, whatever, turned it on. And suddenly I was able to get a clear signal from WLS in Chicago and WABC in New York. And I just went nuts because, you know, this was like the golden age of AM radio when it was like a mix. So it would be a Supreme song and then a Johnny Cash song and then a Bobby Vinta, you know, just this incredibly cool mix. And, you know, I just went, you know, insane and started buying records, uh, using all my money to buy 45s and started a little band, you know, called the Flamingos. We didn't know about the doo-wop band, but literally just (laughs) became obsessed with, with rock and roll. Totally. And by that time, my parents had bought me, you know, one of those little record players that folded up and started buying a few albums. One of my first ones was Animal Tracks, The Animals. And I think I had a Janet Dean album. Of course, they got me Meet the Beatles, but uh, by mistake, they bought like Imposter Beatles record. There were all these Imposter <laughs> ones. It was like, <laughs> you know, at you know the de- local department store. So, of course, I'm like, that's not the Beatles. <laughs> so they had to take that back. And I was very excited because John Lennon and I had very similar birthdays. Mine was October 10th, and we all know when his birthday was, October 9th. So anyway, so I just started obsessing over music at a very young age. And, you know, there really was no access except through your own gumption, you know, so that I had to tune into these stations far, far away. And then, you know, there was a little tiny record shop in our town and the guy's name was Archie that ran it. And he was very sweet to me. So that was like my hang until I got my driver's license and I could drive over to Greensboro, North Carolina, which was a college town and a city with more access. They actually had a real record, you know, a bigger record store and stuff like that, more into the 70s at that point. But my first concert was Jackson 5 at the Greensboro Coliseum. Not bad. Start. I was around (laughs) the same age as Michael. And uh, my second was James Taylor. 
So, um, you Good know, start just... sort of slightly downhill from there. I'd say. Yeah, I know. Everybody <laughs> hates poor James Taylor. But at the time, you know, he was from North Well, he lived in North Carolina for a period. He's sure. more associated with New York and uh, New England. But his father was actually head of the medical school at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which is where I would eventually go to college. And that's where yes. I would get huh. into punk rock. And, you know, again, my musical obsession just kept evolving and changing. I got into the whole country rock, Flying Brito Brothers thing, Graham Parsons, the birds, blah, blah. Then eventually I got super way into punk rock and when I was in Chapel Hill. And thus I moved to New York City to find punk rock since uh, there was very little punk rock in North Carolina in the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah, the Ramones came through and played at a shopping center. And fortunately, my boyfriend at the time was the drummer of a band called The Cigarettes, appropriately, from North Carolina. Uh, one of the only punk yes. bands in North Carolina. So they got to open for the Ramones. So I got to mix and mingle with Joey, who was sweet, and Johnny, who was mean. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, I got to move to New York City. And I saw okay. Patti Smith also. She came and performed at my university right before she had the accident in Florida, fell off stage and broke her neck. Right. right. And so I'm like, I got, I got to get out of here. So I moved to New York to the East Village in 1979 and just started going out to see bands every night of the week. Holly, when did you start reading the music press? Well, interestingly, my dad was pretty cool and hip and actually got Rolling Stone. And so I would read that and he got the New Yorker. So there was a little bit of stuff, you know, I don't really remember it. Maybe I read Ellen Willis or something, but, you know, I don't know. But at that time, again, it was very difficult in my small town to get stuff. Mm. And then when I started going to school in Chapel Hill, we would send emissaries to New York City and they would go to Bleecker Bob's and they would come back with New York Rocker and Trouser oh. Press and stuff like that. So that's when I started reading those zines. And then we started a little punk rock scene. I didn't, but I started writing for one in the Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area. It had the name of Blind Boys Gazette. I wrote a little bit for that and then moved to New York. And, you know, of course, I just went zine crazy. I was and, you know, of course, that's when I started reading Melody Maker and NME and what else? I think at some point in there, The fa the Face, is that the name? Yeah, yeah sure, the, the Face. face started yeah. Coming. Yeah. You know, there was, of course, as every good college graduate who was obsessed with uh, punk rock does when they moved to New York City, I got a, immediately got a waitressing job. And so um, <laughs> there was a, a really right cool shop. Yeah. yeah, there was a shop across the street from where I worked. And that's where I could get all these cool imported zines, you know, magazines from London. And the other great thing about this place that I worked, it's called the Honey Tree Pub. It was right down the street from a methadone clinic. So <laughs> lo and behold, Handy. you came. Yeah. And guess not who came you. in there? Sorry, not for you, by the way. <laughs> well, that's what led to my first interview with a famous person was and I was like I talk like this honey I was just from North Carolina I was right off the boat right so anyway uh who should come in one day from methadone clinic to order amaretto on the rocks and a piece of cheesecake because you know got to get that sugar right Nico fantastic oh yeah wow. so I got up my nerve and finally hi Nico 
um, I'm a writer. Can I interview you? She's like, sure. <laughs> well, when you do, you know, and, and we weren't supposed <laughs> to fraternize with the customers. So I'm like, well, let's do it, you know, tomorrow. And I was so nervous. I got my best friend, Nancy, who was also from North Carolina, also working in a restaurant to come with me to do the interview. Still have the audio cassette somewhere in my attic. And in fact, years later, Hal Gelb of Giant Sand somehow in a conversation came up and he ended up sampling some of the interview for one of his records. This was after Nico passed away. But that was an amazing experience. Um, And it was also near Gramercy Park Hotel where a lot of bands used to stay. So, you know, I would meet, you know, they'd come in sometimes and I'd get to like wait on them. So that was exciting. But it was it was a great time because, um, you know, at that point there were just a few clubs and TR3, not as well known as, say, you know, of course, CBs or Maxes or the Mud Club or whatever. But the one Amy Rigby, who um, you guys might know, was part of this group of people who knew people in London who were artist managers and people in bands. So they started bringing over amazing bands. So I got to see the slits, the raincoats, the modettes, I think, you know, it was awesome. Really, really cool. So yeah, so that was my obsession with music coming full flower. I was really (laughs) lucky. (laughs) Also, I mean, New York and 7980, fantastic place to be. There was so much great music coming out of that town at that time. Yeah. yeah, and and rents were cheap. You know, I immediately got an apartment in the East Village. My first apartment was two hundred dollars a month. You know, and then I got moved up and got it one for two fifty, and then ended up splitting an apartment on St. Mark's Place, which was like the cool street to live on. You know, with someone, and that was a cheap deal too. So yeah, mm-hmm. really lucked out. Yeah, yeah. And you had a band at some point, didn't you, called Das Furlines? Yeah, well, Das Furlines was, yeah, that was my final band. But I actually started playing in bands pretty early on. Um, My first band was called The Discords. And we had kind of a rotating membership. It was, we were kind of inspired by a weird mix of like kind of Gang of Four, kind of Mekons kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had all these different members that would come in and out of the band. Um, R. Kern, who later became a kind of notorious uh, filmmaker who did films with Lydia Lunch and Henry Rollins. Yes. He was briefly in it. This guy, Papa Chubby, he's st- who's out performing as a blues guy, was in it. But that was fun. And I actually, believe it or not, it was such a tiny scene that we would hang out at this after-hours bar and who should start hanging out in the scene when he got out of prison but Wayne Kramer from MC5. Yeah. And he, he literally gave me guitar lessons, that, that same boyfriend who was the drummer in the cigarettes had given me a Fender Mustang. It was customized. It had one of his drum kit covers was on the, was the pick guard. It was very cool. So met Wayne. He gave me guitar lessons. We actually co-wrote a song together. But hey, people were just cool. mixing and mingling. Yeah. The, the band, the cigarettes immediately broke up, but they started running this after hours kind of recording studio club kind of hangout. And the Bad Brains came up from D.C., and started hanging out there. And so Jerry Williams, the guitarist from the band, started working with the Bad Brains. And then Scott Jarvis, my bud, started working with this little teenage hardcore band in the early 80s who uh, started recording their first EP over there. And the place got shut down by the cops, and they ended up having to mix it in my apartment on St. Mark's Place. 
and the the record was called Polywog Stew, and the band was called the Beastie Boys. So wow, it was, oh my! <laughs> so I'd come yes. home. I'd come home. By this no time, way. I had become more respectable and gotten a job at a magazine. I'd come home from work at like six, and there'd be like skateboards parked outside my door, <laughs> and the phone would ring. It's like tell Michael D to come home for dinner, you know, and stuff like that. Oh. But uh, oh, that is brilliant. It was a cool little scene. And I was playing in different bands. I then was in a band called Clam Bag with um, right, yes. this girl, Jean Caffeine, um, Jean who had Caffeine. been in a band called Pulse Alarma that toured with The Clash. <laughs> It was a 12 or 14 piece all girl percussion group that toured the UK with the clash and they had a hit single called the devil lives in my husband's body. So <laughs> that was just rough, I rem- that was memorable. Strictly reportage, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, you know, I had not thought about that record in, I don't know, 35 years or something. And it's just come back to me. Was there a point, Holly, where you were sort of split between wanting to be a musician and wanting to be a writer and, or having to make a choice? I was never a musician. I never, I, I played a mean lead rhythm guitar. You know, once I got those bar chords down, hey. But for me, it was really more of like, you know, how a scientist has to apprentice in the laboratory to understand science or whatever. For me to play in bands was really to kind of understand what it was like to be a musician to be on the road mm. we fortunately got to record quite a bit and Arnie as you know my group clam bake was actually recorded and produced by Alex Chilton so you know in the studio where Chaka Khan and recorded had gold records so so for me that was really the main thing and during that period when I was playing in bands, Clambake and then Das Furlines, where we were actually kind of getting somewhere a little bit. Still, I it, it wasn't my goal to become a you know, successful musician. It was really more just kind of living the life, experiencing it. And I didn't write quite so much then, you know, because I was actually playing in the bands, but I was meeting all these people. So when Das Furlines, my final most famous band, which you can find on YouTube... When we finally stopped playing together, because horribly, our amazing lead singer, Wendy Wilde, who was also in Pulse Alama and a bunch of spinoff bands with the Flesh Tones, etc., horribly, she got breast cancer, which ended up taking her life. She got it at a very young age. She died at 40. So when that band split up, we, we'd actually all kind of settled down. We all met boyfriends and our future husbands, Sue Doss Furlines, and so... When that ended, that's when I really got serious about writing, and I ended up working at Rolling Stone and eventually running the book division there. I wrote my first book with an English woman, Jenny Boyd, who actually just put out a new memoir right as the pandemic hits, sadly. But she and I did a book together called Musicians in Tune, which actually has been reissued by John Blake in the UK. It's called... It's not only rock and roll, but um, it was based yeah, on... she came in our office she did. about three years Still ago. Still looking unfeasibly uh, and, glamorous for a oh. lady of her age. It was really st- st- quite <laughs> staggering. Jenny is 
She is a great person, really yeah, cool person. We liked her very much. Yeah. She was lovely. It was amazing getting to hang out with Jenny because we worked on the book. She had a place in Surrey then. She was then married when we worked on it to Ian Wallace, who was playing with, had been playing with everyone from Dylan. I got to see a lot of really bad Dylan shows when he was at his low ebb. <laughs> and let's see, when was that? That was in the 90s, early 90s. But then, you know, we went over to Patty's house, her sister, which was amazing. Patty, you know, was a photographer. So I had my photo, my portrait taken by Patty Boyds. I mean, how cool is that, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. How did you find Rolling Stone? How did you get your foot in the door at Rolling Stone? And how did you find the the, the culture there and how your, your memories of that time? Again, you know, I I teach uh, arts writing at a university in New York, and I'm always telling my students, it's it's not what you know, it's who you know, and then you let them know what you know. But that's, <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my grandmother, Brownie, used to always say that. It's not what you know, it's who you know. But literally hanging out on the scene, I just met people back in the 80s. So my first ever job at Rolling Stone was as a fact checker for the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll, which was this Mm -hmm. amazing dream job because pre-internet, this was in the 80s, we'd call up like Handsome Dick Manitoba, like, is it true that you were hit upside the head with a microphone by Jane County? And and he's like, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Um, You know, question mark. I got to call question mark of question mark and the mysterious. Like, is it true that you were abducted by aliens from outer space and that's how you got the idea for you know, nine tears, uh, you know, and, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was true. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that was my entree, and through doing that, I met this incredible woman, Sarah Lazen. Barney knows Sarah, who ran Rolling Stone Press, the book division, and she liked my work, and she kept hiring me for different gigs, you know, freelance. Um, you know, fact-checking, proofreading. I kept working my way up the food chain to copy editing and editing and stuff. And so I got to work on these book projects by some phenomenal writers, you know, the great Robert Palmer, a book on the Rolling Stones, Mm -hmm. you know, various people. And so um, she left Rolling Stone and became the magazine's agent and the book division ended. So early 90s, Sarah and I were still in touch. She put me together with Jenny Boyd. So that was my first ever book as as Jenny's co-writer on that. By then I was writing for music magazines and things. And so Rolling Stone decided to do a couple more books, a new edition of the Rolling Stone album guide and the Rolling Stone illustrated history of rock and roll, which were two of their groundbreaking landmark books. So this was the third edition of each, I think it was. So she recommended me. So they hired me as the freelance editor of those books. And I got to work with uh, the great Anthony DeCurtis, a fabulous writer. You probably know his Lou Reed book most recently. And he was really nurturing and he was the music editor. So he started giving me music review assignments and was just a great editor, really helped me up my game as a critic, as a writer. And then they decided, um, Jan Winner, the owner, decided that he wanted to start up a book division again. He loves books, always has, loves music books. So lo and behold, um, they ended up hiring me to run the book division. So in 1993, I became the top editor and hired some other people to work, you know, do my bidding. And so I was there for about almost nine years. I did a 40-something books while I was there. So Yeah, I mean, your, your CV is... <laughs> uh, really impressive. I don't know how you find the time to 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 do all this, and you have a family, and you have a very you must have had a very busy life. Yeah, I like to stay busy. <laughs> I like to multitask. 
Yeah. yeah. It's a good thing you're not playing in 10 bands as Since well. I can't go out and pogo dance anymore, you know, I can't mm. do the pogo dancing at CBGB's or playing guitar on the stage of Max's Kansas City and jumping around on stage. I have to, you know, I have to do lots of projects. So, in <laughs> fact, I'm very excited. I just got a new deal with Penguin in London. I'm doing a Jack Kerouac biography that Penguin UK is going to be publishing over there. It's Viking in America. So that's my big project I'm working on right now. That's like going to be the, I read that's like the official Kerouac biography, right? That's countenanced by the estate, essentially. Well, basically, but it's similar to my deal with, I did my first biography with Gene Autry and then Janice Joplin. And and we, we have a collaboration agreement in which they give me total access to all the personal archives. I get to go rifle through the files and I'm allowed to quote anything I want to, but they have absolutely no control over what I write. There's no editorial approval approvals granted. I have complete autonomy. So, you know, they trust me and I, it's a great deal because I get all the great stuff and you know, they just give it to me. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like they've made all the concessions and you just get to do what you want, yeah, which exactly. sounds pretty <laughs> ideal. That is a good so deal. It's, That's a good deal. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very cool yeah. deal, yeah. And it's it's I'm very lucky that it's worked. So that's the, my deal with the Kerouac Estate. So this will be the first time. Uh, there's a wonderful guy who actually was just in London for this Christian Dior menswear show, which was honoring Jack Kerouac, the creative designer of of Dior for men is a huge Kerouac fan and collector has all these first editions and has this new collection about his influence, not just his writing and literary influence, but just his whole, you know, the beat generation influence. So Jim Sampas, who is a very cool guy who's produced a bunch of tribute albums. And I briefly met him back in the nineties, even he's in charge of the estate. Now his uncle who passed away a few years ago had been running the literary estate for decades. He was the family, um, got involved because Kerouac's third wife, Stella Sampas, was the former executor's sister, so Jim Sampas's aunt. So that so now he's running the estate. And in fact, um, there's a great guy, a beat expert there in England, Simon Warner, who's done a couple of oh, books yes. with uh, Bloomsbury. He's one of our writers. He's a, fr- he's he's a friend, friend oh, okay. of RBP, yeah, yeah. a true uh, friend of RBP and a lovely man. Well, he and Jim Sampas just did a really cool book together a few just a few years ago, came out when I was working on my Janice book and about rock and, the rock and roll beat connection. So um, Sampas... Text and drugs and rock and roll. Exactly. So <laughs> Jim is very cool. And so he, he had the idea to invite me to do the Kerouac book. He had read my Janice book and saw how hugely influential on the road was to Janice. She read it when she was 14. Mm, right. And she started hitchhiking out of Texas and went to San Francisco. So... They approached me during the pandemic to see if I'd be interested, and of course I was, and wrote a big, long book proposal, and the rest is history. Fantastic. Fantastic. (laughs) Since you mentioned Janice, can we just go into, let's just just start with Janice. Of course. What was your first, like, memory of Janice Joplin? Was it in the 60s, or did you come to her a little later, or what? Well, my first real memory was sitting on in my shag carpeted you know floored bedroom with the lavender walls listening to pearl (laughs) thanks for painting that picture it's great (laughs) (laughs) so as we know sadly pearl came out posthumously it came out you know unbelievably 50 years ago in 1971 
And uh, a few months after Janice's untimely demise in October of 1970. So that album rocked my world big time. Um, I just wore it out. It really spoke to me. I love the cover. I'm like, wow, I want to be that. I want to look like that. You know, <laughs> I have a vague memory and I, you know, it could be created, but I think it's real of seeing Janice on like the Dick Cavett show where she mm-hmm. did these incredible conversations with Cabot and, you know, Dick Cavett and then she would perform, et cetera. Again, just being kind of blown away because, you know, again, I lived in this little dinky town in North Carolina. I'd never seen anything like that. And this was, you know, just changed me. It affected me so much. So that was my first memory of her. Um, Of course, I never got to see her live, although crazily I found out she did actually play at UNC Chapel Hill where I went to college. I met some people who were at the show. She played in the gym and was passing around a jug of wine afterwards and all this kind of stuff. So, but sadly I was much too young to have been at that show. Sadly. One of the great things about your biography, which came out just a little over two years ago, and I'm assuming this is to do with the access that you talked about this, all these great quotes from letters and so forth. And we're going to feature Part of the great chapter that you wrote about Big Brother, essentially her joining Big Brother. Mm. So she comes back to San Francisco, I think it's for the third time in early June of 1966. And I'll just read a a little bit from that chapter that you quote from her. She writes home to, I mean, it's very poignant. She's writing home to her parents like, you must be so disappointed in me. You'll just think this is my self-destructive streak again. But there's this lovely little, little bit here. Still working with Big Brother and the Holding Company, and it's really fun. Four guys in the group, Sam, Peter, Dave, and James. We rehearse every afternoon in a garage that's part of a loft an artist friend of theirs owns, and people constantly drop in and listen. Everyone seems very taken with my singing even though I am a little dated, she says. (laughs) That's because, you know, she had been a folk. She wanted to be the white Bessie Smith, you know. I mean, she had, and in fact, that was why her parents were worried too, because she had hitchhiked out to San Francisco in 63 and, of course, had that incredible voice, but was basically either uh, accompanying herself or or meeting up with Yorma Kalkinen was one of her early accompanist on guitar when he was in college out there. So she was doing blues. She was actually writing some cool songs herself, even that early. But sadly, she got really into crystal meth and started shooting it up and got down to like 88 pounds and almost died. So her friends literally put her on a Greyhound bus in 65 and shipped her back home from San Francisco to Port Arthur, Texas. Port Arthur, yeah, yeah. yeah. Her And her parents family nurtured her, you know, back to life. Basically, she literally almost died. And so she went back to college. She'd already dropped out of college a couple of times prior to that. And then when she was back there, she gradually just started singing again. She couldn't help herself. You know, she was a born musician. She could not help but sing. And she started writing songs like Turtle Blues and things like that. So that's why she felt really bad. In fact, she couldn't bring herself to tell them that she'd been sent Chet Helms has sent an emissary, this great guy, Travis Rivers from Texas, to come back to Austin to pick her up because she was performing in Austin, you know, a few hours from Port Arthur. And she told her parents she was just going to Austin for the weekend when in reality she was getting in a car with Travis and going back to San Francisco to join. Well, at first she thought she was auditioning for Big Brother. But of course, you know, as soon as they heard her sing, they're like, we want this woman. 
And she never turned back from that. But she felt bad about her dropping out of school again and lying to her parents and all that. I love the way you weave the narrative around those letters back. The the bit of the book that I've read is is that chapter and a bit further on. And like it is, as as Barney says, super poignant. And just you know, I realize my shifting values don't make me very reliable. Then I'm a disappointment. And well, I'm just sorry. Mm. But at the same time, she's having the time for life. And you know, there's this great thing she does when she's really happy. She writes sigh exclamation mark exclamation mark. <laughs> and it's it's just it it really paints a picture of a person. And I think the way you use those letters is great. And it kind of all fits together very naturally. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And she, you know, she was a talented artist. She wanted to be a visual artist before she discovered her amazing way of putting across a song, shall we say. And she drew little pictures and she'd write home letters and describe outfits people were wearing. And, you know, I mean, gosh, you know, San Francisco in the summer of 66, that was the real summer of love before it got all um, commercialized and no, you know, became notorious by the media and stuff the summer of 67. So it was just such an amazing scene. And she finally found this, you know, this tribe of people that embraced her, that she fit into, because she'd always been the weirdo. And most, you know, in Texas, even when she was a popular singer in her first group, the Waller Creek Boys, in 1960, you know, too, she really didn't, you know, she'd get popular because they loved her voice, but then she was kind of an outcast because of the way she dressed and acted and all that. So um, mm, mm. she she really loved San Francisco. There's a very interesting thing that Sam Andrew says to you, which is Janice always had this thing of total insecurity and total power at the same time. And it was really something to be confronted with both of them. You never knew which one to relate to. And it sounds like that was how she struck Sam from the get-go. And it was this combination of, I hate to use the word, but like ballsiness, I guess, and fragility that really defined her career and the way, well, the the way she like abused herself and the fact that she died, you know, at 27, like all the other superstars of that era. I thought it would be nice, Mark, if you could just introduce the audio interview, the first of the audio clips in this connection. Yeah, this is uh, Gene Scalati. And remind me, Barney, who's the other person doing the interviewing here? Cause... So Davin Say, Gene and Davin Say wrote the book San Francisco right. Night. So they were interviewing people together. So I think that this voice, I think that you hear to start with is Davin Say, the deeper voice. Sure. Okay. And it's with Peter Alban. It's also James Girl is there. He doesn't say a great deal, but he chips in every now and again. And Alban talks about growing up in San Carlos, having a folk group with his brother, which is very much the sort of the story you hear from most of the San Francisco rock and roll musicians it's it's it seems to be the way they did things there then 1090 page street which is really important scene uh that's where they did all their stuff it's where they all met it's where they met up people who became members of the band meeting sam andrew chet helms the family dog chet helms is hugely important to the the whole big brother story family dog which was an early attempt to set up a ballroom scene around the same time as 
Bill Graham was sort of thinking about doing a similar thing in San Francisco. Their very first gig ever was at the Trips Festival, which is a pretty extraordinary way to start. Yeah. Bill Graham versus Ken Kesey, which you can imagine. Basically, Bill Graham be kind of throwing people out who are sitting on the floor saying, go and pay your way in, at which point Ken Kesey would open the door to one side and let everyone in anyway. <laughs> Talked about the way the bands in San Francisco kind of hung out together, copied each other, dressed similarly. The charlatans being these huge ones for dressing up, the whole Western gear thing, how they influenced each other. Talked about Big Brother doing cover versions, developing material, improvising. And that's something I think because of Janice, we rather forget that aspect of Big Brothers. They were like Quicksilver, like the Grateful Dead, very much an improvisatory band. And then it talks about holding auditions for vocalists and Janice and Chet bringing Janice along, having kind of gone back and got about back out of Texas again. Uh, let's listen to this clip. This is about Janice joining Big Brother. So how was the feeling in the group after she joined up? Was it like peaches and cream? Everybody felt good about it? Was there um, any, uh... Well, we felt good in a rehearsal situation. Yeah, it sounded good to us. And After the first gig, we were hearing some comments from some people say, well, you guys are losing the... Um, that craziness, you know, you get more like the rest of the groups here in town. You know, you gotta get rid of the girl. Mm-hmm. You know. But we felt that she was really an added attraction, you know. Uh, you know, we said uh, uh, that she can she could blend with us and, and get along uh, with our other style of music, also. Well. It just didn't take but a year uh, that we changed our repertoire, basically to fit her. We we eliminated a thing called Mount King after a year. very interesting stuff i mean you know that uh i mean obviously jeff's an airplane also had a woman singer so it's not like the idea of having a woman singer was totally alien to the whole san francisco scene no and grace was in great society before that and so on and so forth he talks as he does there about about her evolving as a singer then they get stranded in chicago and end up recording the first album for mainstream which sounds like a fairly unhappy event all around and kind of just about every respect they went there to play some shows the, the the promoter never paid them, they and so on and so forth. So, you know, classics and ghastly story. Then Monterey Pops Festival, which, uh, and signing with Albert Grossman. Well, let's listen to this clip. This is about Albert Grossman. So, Grossman was, got you signed to CBS, essentially. Because he had, he had Dylan. And Dylan was very, very heavy for them. Also, he had the band at the time. Was he, was he happy to sign you? or was? And he also had Peter, Paul, and Mary. 
Was he happy to sign you, or did he, did he need some convincing, or what? No, he was fairly happy, but he didn't like the band too much. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you react to all that criticism if people said she was great, the band can't play? I mean, were you guys hurt? Well, I know, I know where they were coming from. You know, I know, I know what the uh, uh, what uh, uh, Roseman's frame of reference was. Uh, he had bands like the Poppers and Poco Seco Singers and uh, um, uh, even Paul Butterfield, you know, was, you know, doing solid blues. You know, we were not a blues band. We were not a pop band. What were you? Yeah, we were kind of, you know, psychedelic, you know, arrangers who played blues once in a while. And had a, had a kind of a blues singer in the group. But we were doing, and, and you know, we did all sorts of different kind of things. Well, he didn't particularly like a rhythm section, which means specifically me and David. Mm-hmm. At one point, he wanted to replace us, you know, recording. You know, we started doing some recording for CBS. He said, "Well, shit, I think we got to bring in some other people." I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I hope this doesn't offend you guys, but I think we got to bring in a bass player and drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know what? Uh, tell you the truth, it does offend us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it does. I, I mean, I, I found this really interesting because that then um, in this he goes on to talking about recording cheap thrills. And we, when we had John Simon on the podcast a, a while back, he kind of affirmed the same thing that Albin says here: is that it wasn't nearly as live in the proper ad recorded as a live show sense as everyone's made it out to be, and it's even made out to be on the sleeve. That it's virtually all done in the studio, but recorded as live as possible, band in a room sort of stuff. You know, very little overdubbing, and it's very interesting about about that process. But you know, what it isn't the inverted commas live album that, that a lot of people claim it to be. We'll listen to a clip at the end where he talks about the cover versions which are on that, which are like "Piece of My Heart" and "Bull and Chain" and so on and so forth. Um, I we're talking about you know first when in like about around nineteen seventy when I was at school, Cheap Thrills was one of those albums that everyone had, and uh, I, I absolutely loved it. The Robert Crumb cover, just everything about it, I thought was just fantastic. And I never really liked anything she did subsequently as much, even though technically it was better. I mean, she was being sort of she wanted to become like a white soul singer to all intents and purposes, but around the time of Pearls, certainly, you know. But I, there's something about the, that, the crudeness of Big Brother and her, I think it's just a bit magical. That's a personal. Holly, do you, do you have a, a view? Do you take sides in this? Are you more of a cheap thrills person or more of a Pearl person? We'll forget about the one in the middle. Uh- for now but they're, they're the <laughs> well, two actually that's one of my favorite ones barney is it? and okay. yeah okay. yeah and i have to say that I, i'm a janice fan and mm. janice was a very restless artist she even if they hadn't started having some issues with you know competition and big brother and some jealousies and things sure. like that that ate away at the band because of the horrible way Big Brother were treated by members of the press and also other musicians who had badmouthed them to the press. Yeah. It wasn't just Grossman, you know. John Simon really, I you know, listened to your podcast with him, and he definitely he was such the wrong producer for that record, and the way he treated them in the studio. And that's one thing I learned about as a musician myself, briefly in studios. If your confidence is undermined in the studio, it really makes things shaky. And Janice was this 
musician who she could just go in and sing her ass off, you know, nothing would stop her in the studio. Whereas the guys started getting, you know, their underfooting was crumbling because of the way they were treated horribly. But as far as Janice's own artistry goes, I love all of her different phases. And had she not died, I think she was definitely moving in that kind of Graham Parsons country rock, Amer- you know, now what we call Americana direction. She loved Chris Christopherson's writing. There's great bootlegs of her doing Sunday Morning Coming Down. You know, I, yes. I think she would have continued doing that for a while. But guess what? When she died, she was learning how to produce records. She loved working in the studio. She also was taking piano lessons, which she hadn't done since she was like a little kid and learned from her mom. So, you know, she loved Nina Simone. She loved that kind of jazzy, bluesy things. I mean, there's no end to what she might have done had she lived. So I think all of her records have merit. I I was like Barney thinking like, oh, I got to mow Cosmic Blues again, Mama, which was her first solo album that came out um, backed by what was later named the Cosmic Blues Band. Sam Andrew was in the band for a while and some other people who the bass player, Brad Campbell, was with her who was later on Pearl, you know, in the Full Tilt Boogie Band. But if you go back and really give that record some attention, there is some incredible tracks on that record. And especially if you figure out like, wait a minute, this woman was on, had been touring nonstop for like two years with not, with barely a night off and popping into the studio. That's when she was starting to mess around with heroin and stuff as well. That, you know, the fact that she did this incredible record and Cosmic Blues, that song is one of my favorite songs of all time. She wrote that song and the, you know, her, her producer, you know, helped on some of the music and stuff, but it's, you know, there's some amazing tracks on there. If you listen to some of Mike Bloomfield, who is uncredited, plays guitar on some of it. It's fantastic. So, and I even like that mainstream record, which, yeah, they started doing a few tracks when they were marooned in Chicago and, and keep in mind, you know, Peter, you know, they all brought such a different thing to big brother, Peter, had actually met Janice in that folky period when she was, you know, cause with his folk group and stuff, they were even on the same radio show together. So he kind of came from that background. And then Peter's just this amazing whimsical kind of guy. So he did these kind of whimsical songs. And then James Gurley was wanted to play guitar the way John Coltrane played the horn. And he was like in a whole other world. And then Sam Andrew had this whole classical training Dave Getz was, you know, this drummer who came up kind of playing the Borscht Belt in New York. He was the only New Yorker mm-hmm. in the band. So that combination, that chemistry was just fantastic. And so I love that. I would have given anything to have been at one of their live shows. I love listening to the bootlegs. When, and Peter really was the band leader until Janice just became so popular with audiences. And it w- wasn't just the you know, the record label people trying to tell them like, oh, it's Janice's show. I mean, 
that's what started happening in the beginning. Yeah. It was this democracy. Janice only sang lead on a few of the songs for quite a while. And even on those mainstream recordings, it was mostly Peter doing lead vocals. You know, James Gurley did lead vocals on uh, Cuckoo, you know, the old Appalachian mm. folk song. I mean, their mix was amazing. And so yeah. I, I can't really... Depending on what mood I'm in, that's my favorite one of her records that day. But I think they all have a lot of merit. I love Gurley's <laughs> nickname that you get into the book, the Arch Fiend of the Universe. Yeah. Because he was a – I wish we could hear more of him in this audio because he's the great kind of enigma of the Big Brother story, isn't he? I remember really finding out a fair amount about him in Joel Selvin's book, Summer of Love, and realizing what sort of dark and enigmatic character he was. But I love Archfiend of the Universe. I mean, James could never have played on on Pearl. He really was coming from a completely different place, wasn't he? But a fascinating yeah. character. And I mean, yeah. Nancy, his his wife was a very important part of, of the of the hate scene, wasn't she? She was, yeah. And and Janice was great friends with her, even though she slept with, you know, her husband, James, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but she was very I mean, James and Nancy were this really they were the epitome of that kind of seeking countercultural couple who'd been living in Mexico in the desert and experimenting mm. with hallucinogens that the native people there were using for religious rituals and things like that. And they were just out there. And And Nancy was incredibly creative as far as, um, you know, doing her beadwork. And they had the God's eye symbol they would make out of like yarn. And it was, it was just a cool scene for them. And, you know, Nancy really inspired Janice because Janice, when she got there, was kind of like a cross between her dress was like a cross between a beatnik and, you know, this, you know, Texas cowgirl, you know, wearing yeah. barefooted denims, uh, whatever. And Nancy was wearing these exotic, you know, dresses from Mexico and that started taking her to thrift shops to find, you know, cool lace vintage stuff and making tops out of tablecloths and velvet Mexican skirts turned into capes and just cool mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Janice, almost sort of became the unofficial queen of the hate, didn't she? I mean, she oh, totally. was just, you know, uh, the word icon is uh, horribly overused all the time, but she, she it remains an iconic presence because precisely because she just looked like an ordinary girl. She didn't look like, I don't know, Michelle Phillips or something, but she, she was just so wild, really. And, Terrible and... taste of liquor. I mean, Southern Comfort. You don't <laughs> do not drink that much. You know, her and Pigpen swallowing Southern Comfort. Yeah, yeah Pigpen turned her on to that. She did move yeah. on to tequila. And it's funnily enough, when she played Royal Albert Hall in London, which gosh, yeah. I wish there was like a bootleg recording of that because apparently that was just so phenomenal. The people that I spoke to that were there. Well, Ian just, Kimmett, our friend Ian Kimmett was running love around Ian with her, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, yeah. His and he description said of that show. Incredible show. Yeah. So she couldn't get either, she couldn't even get tequila, I don't think, in, in London. So I think she started drinking vodka then or maybe gin, you know. <laughs> I but, hope so. Resort to gin. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I mean, your book is an absolute goldmine of fascinating stories and, and you. quotes, you know, and uh, she's one of the great singers for me. I think in a sense, her kind of, her early demise and her reckless life have slightly overshadowed the fact that she was yeah. just 
a tremendous singer. If you take every, even if you take everything else away, you are left with this unique voice. Yeah, I want. I mean, it's interesting what you said about what she might have gone on to do. I, I, I mean, I really love Pearl. I have to say, I love the fact that Bobby Womack is on it. Oh God, I yeah. love the Burns Ragavoy. I love her taste in mm-hmm. material, and I wonder whether she could also, I suppose, in a way, she laid the groundwork with that album for kind of. I mean, some aspects of like what Bonnie Raitt did and maybe even Lowell George. There was very much a kind of funky sort of soulfulness there yeah. as well as the kind of country, Texas roots. True. I think she could have, yeah, she could have been like such a such a powerful presence through the 70s. Well, she was, you know, she just loved soul music as well as blues and funk. And, I mean, she was obsessed with Otis Redding, and she got to see him perform at the Fillmore and would go to every one of his shows and just kind of – and you could literally, if you really want to be a geek about it and go through and listen to her style before she saw Otis Redding and then after – you could see how, you know, she takes these influences, like just like she did with Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey. It's earlier on when she was a blues singer. And she would just kind of take these influences and then she would janicize them, you know, and put them through her whole experience. And she was this ultra sensitive person at heart, which she would cover up a lot with boozing it up and drugs, of course. But she was a great thinker and a great feeler. And those aspects of her with that incredible vocal ability of hers just created something very unique. And, you know, we've, we'll never see her like again, sadly. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe you should finish with the, just the, uh, the Janice portion of the show, as it were, with just this quote that she, I, I don't know who she said this to, but uh, maybe it was in a letter after she came off stage at the Avalon, that first Big Brother show that she did. What a rush, man. A real live drug rush. All I remember is the sensation. What a fucking gas, man. I dug it. I said, I think I'll stay, boys. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't people use language like that anymore? I mean, this is the big disappointment of my life. No one says man or gas anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Or ball. Let's go. Hey, Um, baby, want a ball? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There is no Janice interview without the word ball in it several (laughs) times. So at this point, I think we would like to turn our attention to the loss of Michael Nesmith, Mm. who who died just after we recorded last week's Mm. podcast. And Barney, can I just say something really quick? Yes. There is, bizarrely enough, a little weird connection. Peter Tork, obviously, you know, the last monkey to die, and Janice were very, very tight. And when when Big Brother first started making it, you know, he was having parties for them. So I'm sure she hung out with Nesmith a bit. He had left the monkeys, I think, around that time. But so there is a little segue, (laughs) just saying. And also, uh, you know, uh, everything goes back to Janice, you know. And and Nesmith was a Texan after all as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So they have that in common. But so, I mean, should we just briefly, before we talk about Michael, the solo artist, we were sort of joshing before we, we started recording and you, you you used the phrase America's Beatles about <laughs> the monkeys. I mean, is that how you experienced them? In a way, it's how I experienced the monkeys. I absolutely love the monkeys in some ways, even more than the Beatles because of the, the TV show. What was your first like awareness of the monkeys on TV? Well, clearly they were created with the Beatles in mind. So each one had a very distinctive persona, you know, John, Paul, George and Ringo were, you know, you can feel 
find their equivalent in the monkeys as far as their persona goes. But yeah, between the fact of their TV show, their incredibly well-written songs by some of the best songwriters in America, and the monkey fanzines. You asked me before about music magazines. Well, I forgot. Actually, probably the first music magazines that I poured over and read every page of were these monkeys fanzines. You could get monkeys bubblegum cards that I collected. I still have some, you know? So they were this thing, kind of our version of Beatlemania were the monkeys. So I just, you know, loved them. Watched the TV show, bought all the albums, bought the 45s. You know, I was right at that perfect age. You know, I had my expendable income from babysitting, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I took turns, which one was my favorite that I crushed on, you know? So, <laughs> you know, sadly, the only one I never had the crush on was Mickey. I don't know why, but okay. you know, Michael for a while, Davey, of course, first, then Peter Tork, then Michael. And then finally never Mickey. By the time I would have liked Mickey, I'd moved on. It's, it's funny. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I was already a snob at the age of 10 and I sort of thought there was something fake about from the very get go. I remember my sister buying their first album at Town Records on the King's Road and running home with it, literally running home with it, clutched to her chest. And she went to see them when they played the Hammersmith Odeon, I think. And her main memory of that is spilling her coke all over her shoes while the, all the girls around her were going absolutely bonkers. But I was a skeptic. I'm sorry, I, I don't, don't think this is a good thing. At the age of 10, I was a skeptic. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, the comparison is. On, the, on, my, on my left was the monkeys and my right was Jimi Hendrix. And there was absolutely no way that I could combine the two things, you know. What's, but they did that, though. That's what's so they cool about them. They, 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 yeah, they the famous tour. Yeah. Yeah, the and they tour. saw Hendrix at Monterey. We were talking about that before. And, you know, they were part of Monterey. Uh, I think Peter Tork introduced maybe, you know, a lot of maybe even Janice and Big Brother the second time mm -hmm. they played. But anyway, so, yeah, they went nuts over Hendrix and got him to open for them. And this is what drives me crazy to this day, <laughs> that the Monkees with Hendrix opening actually played at the Greensboro Coliseum, the place where I later saw Jackson. And I didn't, I wasn't cool enough to know about it. So I didn't get to go to that show. And oh. one of my best friends went to the show the next night in Charlotte because she had a big brother that told her about them or whatever. So she went and got to go backstage and meet Hendrix and the monkeys and everything. And I'm still jealous you to could this have day. Done that. Oh my <laughs> God. That's, that's, that's a hole in your life. Without <laughs> but, you know, of course, Hendrix was booed by all those crazy monkey tunes. And I just can't help but wonder, like, what would I have thought? If I had been in that audience, what would I have thought, you know? Mm. So. Mm. No, it's just funny. You know, we, in, this, in this country, I don't think we ever, I don't think many of us regard them as America's Beatles. I think we regard them as Americans, Herman's Hermits, if there's anyone, you know, <laughs> brutally. Yeah, you know? I, I did. Well, I loved Herman's Hermits, too. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up, I went to see the movie Hold On, I think it was called, the Herman's Hermits movie, and I just love that Peter Noon. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to you say that, Mark, and I totally get it. The first, We're going to run this piece from KRLA Beat that Louise Crescioni wrote before the TV series has even started, and she's kind of saying, well, we just all assumed it was going to be phony, and we assumed that like the music was going to be terrible, but then Last Train to Clarksville came out, you know, we'd take a giant step on the B-side and it's like, well, we couldn't argue with that. It's just a phenomenal pop record. And they did make some phenomenal pop records. Take the last train to Pottsville and I'll meet you at the station. You can be here by 4.30 because I've made your reservation. Don't be slow. 
You know, obviously, Boyce and Hart had a lot to do with that, and there was a whole machinery behind them. But I think the records were pretty great. Of course, the so the story really continues. The, the real kind of post-Monkey story is is this very improbable direction that Michael Nesmith took. Michael Nesmith walks out on the monkeys. He just can't take, the, in a sense, the phoniness of it anymore. So we're running this great Gene Guerrero interview that you added a while back, yeah, Mark, yeah. from Great Speckled Bird, from summer 71. It's published 20th September 71. And it is, it's really so interesting to hear him talking at that time in his very really quite jaded and cynical way about what the monkeys meant and and he says that essentially he had to pay $160,000 to get out of the monkeys but then because he'd written so many more of the songs he was you know eventually worth millions and millions yeah, he wasn't didn't you also inherit money yeah tipex that's money. right his mum invented tipex so i mean he was Really, un- by pop over here, it's called White Out, by the way. Okay, White okay. Out, White <laughs> Out, White Out. He was massively wealthy, but then, but, but he became this sort of folk country troubadour, making yeah, I, these quite I, I, eccentric. I, I was really surprised because I, I, by 1970, I'd become a big zigzag reader, and yeah, suddenly they started running articles about him, and he was working with the nitty gritty dirt band and things like that. John Tobler never stopped writing. I, I know, him, I, and, and, and <laughs> this, I have to say, I found very confusing. You know, <laughs> hang on, where did this come from? It's very interesting, yeah. And then, of course, he went on to one of the inventors of the music video. Mm. Yes, yeah, he, he, yeah, he had a lot yeah. to do with the, with the, I mean, was his video the first one to be shown on MTV, I think? I think it was. But also he was, but even before that, he saw that video was going to be part of the way to go and set up various companies in order to do them, to make them. I think if he had, what if he could have, he would have set up MTV himself. Well, I mean, yeah. coming from, I mean, that's one thing about, even though he hated being considered just this, you know, fake musician because of the monkeys TV show, but Hey, the monkeys TV show, which was kind of inspired, I think by a hard day's night, in the Herman's Hermits movie. <laughs> Are they um, paying you, Holly? <laughs> so, so, you know, how could he not but see the power of video and realize, sure. like, wait, we put over mm. these songs in this, you know, goofy TV show. And then, of course, there was Head, which I only just saw after getting my second COVID shot when I was feeling a little hungover. I finally saw <laughs> the movie Head conditions. after all these years. <laughs> But he realized the power of the video. So it seems like it was a no-brainer with his business sense, et cetera. Interesting guy. Shall we hear this clip of Michael Nesmith speaking to Ian Ravendale in 1974 here in the UK? The United States is not, has sort of not quite been able to recover from the monkeys but um immediately you left the monkeys you had um a million selling record with joanne so yeah, yeah. was that on the crest of the monkeys you, you no think? i think that i think that was on the strength of the song at least that's what i'd like to think it maybe it was on the crest of the monkeys but whatever it was doing it was a very um it's been very difficult um for people to um to think in different terms than the fact that I was uh, with the monkeys. Now that doesn't bother me a bit. I mean, I don't. I don't care what. The, I mean, I, it, it doesn't. 
make it any difference to me whether or not um, what terms I'm thought of in. You know, I mean, I the only person I can be responsible for is me, and uh, the only thing I can be responsible to is my own guiding light. Her name was Joanne, and she lived in a meadow by love that Texas accent, you know. Yeah. Yeah, very middle, a very middle-class Texas accent. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, he make, I mean, unlike, let's say, W's accent, which was a fake working-class Texas accent, that's a middle-class Texas accent. It's, it's <laughs> I mean, he is a fascinating guy. I mean, one of the sort of really smart people to come out yeah. of pop, but also one of the people who just, you know, couldn't take it that seriously and had a, a certain amount of scorn, I guess, for the pop industry. I mean, but I think he also one, had yeah. this kind of satirical thing too, because yeah. he claimed, now I don't know if this is true, because I'm actually working on a documentary about Nudie, the rhinestone yeah, cowboy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Michael Nesmith claimed to have even gone to Nudie's and get a new, and got a Nudie suit made be- even before Graham Parsons went in and got them for his international submarine band, which was around 66. So, yeah, I've, I've seen, well, you know, so, I don't know if it's before or after, but I've seen a lot of photographs being posted on my social media by friends just in the last couple of days of him in a nudie suit looking absolutely yeah. magnificent, it has to be said. Exactly, yeah. And supposedly he still has them, had them all. And anyway, so I think he, you know, was a bit cheeky in a way because he kind of understood the irony yeah. of, you know, and at that time, if you think about you know, because of the counterculture, we were just talking about Janice and everything, the whole country and Western sensibility in that scene was, you know, there was a huge divide between that and the counterculture. And because they were considered the conservative right wing, you know, later Nixon followers, et cetera. And, you know, here are these people part of the, you know, it was kind of a taking the piss kind of thing with the monkeys, some of their antics and all that, even though they were these great pop songs, but they still had that little kind of satirical edge to them, maybe even inspired by like say Monty Python or something like that too. Mm. And, you know, he like trying to take some of this trappings of that conservative element of that audience who were despised at that time by the counterculture. So, and he understood that when he wasn't taken seriously as a musician, a very, very talented musician, songwriter, singer, etc., by the counterculture, because he was, you know, this puppet, you know, this facade as a member of the monkeys. So I think it's kind of an interesting story. Well, so farewell then, Michael Nesmith, fascinating guy. So I'm at the Roundhouse in 75 yeah. with Red Roads. Yeah, so I, I saw the, the country Nesmith. I don't know how well those records stand up. I don't think they quite stand up as well as the Monkey's Great Hits. But there we go. He's an interesting dude. Absolutely. For yeah, sure. And I'm glad that he got mm. to go back and perform. You know, right before he died, he was here in New York and did a couple of shows. A friend of mine that I saw the Monkey's with right after Peter Tork died, I think around 2019. And Michael Nesmith was really fantastic. He was really on, et cetera. And my friend that I went with just saw the shows, which were just about six weeks or so ago, and said that he was at a very low ebb and oh. didn't seem to have any sort of, you know, stage presence or energy and oh my was having a difficult time. So clearly he went, pushed himself and went out and did that last 
run of shows with the monkeys with Mickey Dolenz and some other great players and okay, okay. his son. Uh, so. I didn't realize he was still performing yeah, that, no, yes, that, he that brought, short time ago. A few, a few right. weeks back. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah. wow. Yeah, okay, so, okay. So he, he, he almost died with his boots on, you know? So, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If not his nudie suit. Yeah. Holly, thank you so much for talking to us about Janice and Michael Nesmith and everything else. Will you kindly stick around while we go through some of the highlights of the pieces that have gone into the library. Mark's going to kick us off with yeah. that. Yeah. Jasper, swift question. How do you pronounce an O with an umlaut over? Ooh. Okay, so this is more. This is Maureen Cleave talking to, meeting Mark Berlin. <laughs> Evening Stad 1965, he had adopted an umlaut. Mark Bolan had adopted an umlaut because they thought it was sophisticated. <laughs> um, and he's great. What a he's ridiculous already thing to do. In 1965, this is, you know, I don't know, nine years, eight years before he started having hits again or something, you know, proper hits. He said, I had this thing about Greek gods. The whole idea about centaurs and horses with wings just knocks me out. Personally, the prospect of being immortal doesn't excite me, but a prospect of being a materialistic idol for four years does appeal. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Exactly. It was uncanny reading. And what didn't happen is I look forward to growing old, to being mature and knowing good wine. I want to save a life. I want to have grey hair like Cary Grant. This interview's fantastic. It's just quote after quote. Says, I know it sounds ego, but it's really scary. If I go into a room and there are ten girls, nine of them will fancy me. I've never yet failed with girls. So that's Mark Bowen in 1965, who had done sweet fuck all. But <laughs> he was developing a reputation as a sort of face around town, wasn't he? And he was a, he was, yeah, he was. He was He was one of the great models. And hadn't him. he already started as a, a young model, even as a young man? Uh, yeah, yeah, before... yeah, he was modelling. He wasn't a musician at that point. I think he was just thinking about getting into being a, be, being a musician. Mm-hmm. Mark Feld, yes. Mark, Mark Feld. Feld, I think. Uh, it, yeah. Nice Jewish boy from the East nice End. Nice Jewish boy. Exactly. Absolutely. Derek Taylor reporting on Chris Hillman the Birds' house being burnt down. It's 1967, and it's written sort of in the third person. He says, the house, two-storied, was destroyed. Chris Hillman lost everything, telescope, cameras, records, stereo, paintings, furniture, and a poster showing Tijuana in a favourable light. I love this. <laughs> I just love Classic that. Derek. Great detail. Classic Derek. I, I love that slightly curled lip yeah. that bit there. It's just fantastic. John Peel, being interviewed by Rich Green and The Enemy in 69, and this is about him setting up Dandelion, his record label. Yeah. He says, I'm not concerned with money and acquiring fast cars and things. I know people don't believe that, but it's true, which is fair enough. I really don't think I have a great deal of influence. If I have, it's all gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell I mean, that to all the musicians exactly. that, you know, to this day yes. brag about being on John Peel's show, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least a lot of the indie American musicians I know, to them, having been on that show was like one of the oh, for, best things in yeah, their entire career. For sure. Absolutely. I, I, it's, it's hard to actually quantify his Quant- yeah. quantify his importance uh, to mm. particularly to you know british rock music and he's such an unlikely person too i mean the first time i saw him in the flesh he was behind the amps when captain beefheart and a magic band played the albert hall in 72 and he was running around he's a hippie hanging out with the hippies being doing hippie stuff you didn't you turn around and he's playing crass 
you know, so it's 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 it's, it's really quite <laughs> quite a remarkable <laughs> career. <laughs> What's next, Marco? Oh, this is lovely. Lillian Roxon, New York Sunday News, fourteenth mm. November seventy one, on the coquettes. It's our very first and probably only piece on the coquettes we're ever going to get on the site, which gives me great pleasure because of the great Sylvester was a part of the coquettes. You know, does he get a mansion in this? No, he doesn't. No, yeah. Okay. She says eventually, I feel they're going to set the hot, the style for a whole look of dress and cosmetics and music and out of it. If you don't believe me, try to remember how they, much they laughed at Elvis's gold lame suits. Today, he takes to the stage completely smothered in sequins. No one bats an eyelid. And now about the vulgarity. You should know, I suppose, if you don't already, that many of the coquettes are boys and that, not content with donning female apparel, they are likely, at the slightest provocation, to doff it. This might be very <laughs> shocking if so-called frontal male nudity weren't already an integral part of so many films and Broadway shows. I just love it because the press in New York absolutely slaughtered coquettes. They thought they were dreadful. Dear old Roxons, you know, she, she, she gets it. She gets them. And I think that they their outfits actually, I think, were a big influence on Janis Joplin. You know, oh, she really? totally... Could, could be, you know, yeah. 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 Their, their look, along with a little bit of Mae West, a little bit of Bessie yeah. Smith, but that kind of style, you know, definitely. Makes sense. Yeah, it's great. Brian Case interviewing great club owner and saxophonist Ronnie Scott in 1975. He says, I hate making records. No ambitions. I don't like to listen to myself on record more than once for my own critical curiosity. Interesting guy, because, I mean, he killed himself. Jasper, I don't know if you know about this. You know, he killed himself after he had lost his embouchure, could no longer blow mm. on a saxophone. That's when he chose to kill himself. Very complicated, interesting man. Yeah, I mean, there's a, if indeed he did, I mean, there's all sorts of yeah, you know, sure. people question it. But yeah, that, I think that is, he had lost his embouchure and couldn't yeah, play anymore. That's right. Lastly, 1976, Ed Jones, this is marvellous, the Sex Pistols at the 100 Club, but for the New Society, which is not the sort of magazine you expect to see a review of the Sex Pistols at the 100 Club in. And he says, anarchy, anarchy, anarchy in the UK, bulls the audience. On stage, Johnny Rotten sneers, shouts, go fuck, and spits at the front row as the band, like a steam engine in labour, begins grinding out an ear-splitting riff at breakneck speed. Kids go apeshit, leaping high off the ground as if on invisible pogo sticks. The scene is the sweltering basement of the 100 Club in London's Oxford Street, where a band called the Sex Pistols is topping the bill at the second evening of a festival of punk, a genre of music, pop music currently monopolising the attention of music business bandwagon jumpers. First of all, he talks about the, the audience dancing as if on invisible pogo sticks. Now, of course, the punk dance was called the pogo. Had it been called the pogo by October 76? I'm not sure it had been. You know, right. it could, it, you know, so he may have actually kind of predicted that particular line. Okay. But, but I just love the fact he's writing about this stuff for New Society, which is a sort of... Yeah. But to, but for Brilliant. our listeners who don't understand, what, what, what is New Society, Barney? I mean, it was it was sort of like the sociologist's read of choice, wasn't it? Really? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was it was very much a, a slightly more sort of sociological version of the New Statesman, as I recall. Not that yes. I read it avidly, uh, but no, I, it's, it's yeah. along those lines. So it's, I've this, this is a piece of this is a piece of sociology. Really. <laughs> is, that yeah. the, is that the same show that Lenny Kay was well, talking about? It, 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 about well, I, I don't know how uh, how many times the Pistols played the hundred. Yeah, probably. They, a few times. Well, they did two nights in a row, which is a festival, which is where Sid Vicious blinded that woman by throwing a 
glass at the stage yeah. and also played as part of what became Susie and the Banshees. There's that. But I think the Pistols played another couple of shows at, 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 at the 100 Club on top of that. So that's, yeah. that's, that's me done. Well, Lovely. actually, very briefly, in 97, uh, Daft Punk's Thomas Bangalter to ah. Andy Kreisel. He says, we don't care what people think about our T-shirts or haircuts. Also, we don't like being asked stupid questions. <laughs> it, 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 this interview didn't go well, I can tell you. <laughs> oh, marvellous. I'll have to look at that. Anyway, <laughs> that's my lot. <laughs> All right. All right, Jasper, over to you. I want to mention two things, the first of which is The Life and Work of Basquiat by Victor Bocras in Gadfly in May 2000, May, June 2000. And I'm a huge Jean-Michel Basquiat fan, so this mm-hmm. was great to read and add. And it's, it's an interesting piece. It begins, a good place to begin this article is, who does Jean-Michel Basquiat remind me of? The answer is four men who are his original role models and heroes, Muhammad Ali, Keith Richards, William Burroughs, and Andy Warhol. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, gonna, and he goes. Victor Bocras goes through each of those and kind of explains why he feels this this link to them, and in the process, kind of just paints this picture of Basquiat. As Basquiat regularly stops to spray paint poems in a large primitive scrawl covering spaces approximately eight feet wide and five feet long, he explains, "I'm a writer. Sometimes I feel I was written. Maybe I wrote myself." And I, you just, I mean, yeah. Basquiat just incredible incredible artist and i yeah, think yeah. stands up today still as one of just the best artists of the 20th century did you ever run into him holly in new york well one of my friends up here in uh the woodstock area was one of his paramours oh. and actually has some of his little postcards oh. in fact wow she just the other day told me this great story about she was hanging they were like uh 19 at the time i think and he was making these little postcards and actually selling them on the street. And my friend Katie Lignini said, oh, look, there's Andy Warhol. He just went into that restaurant. Go into the restaurant and sell him one of your postcards, you know, because they were brazen street kids, right? So sure enough, Andy Warhol goes, sits down in this restaurant. And of course, uh, Jean-Michel, gorgeous guy, goes in and goes up to the table. And sure enough, Andy Warhol bought a bunch of the postcards. (laughs) According to Katie, that was the beginning of their mentoring, you know, mentee, mentoree relationship. So, of course. Warhol got way more out of Basquiat than Basquiat ever did out of Warhol. But uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, another bit thing that Bokris is quoting from a biography by Phoebe Hoban and says, critics have compared his aesthetic to sampling as if this child of the media were a highly tuned antenna who received and then broadcast urgent bits of his message loud and clear, which I think is great. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's slightly pissing me off about this is what gets lost is what how good a painter he was. Yeah, I mean, sure. Just his simple ability to use a brush oh, yeah. and paint on, on, on a canvas was fantastic and it all gets lost under all this other trash about his life yeah it's, it's, it's like it's like with Janice in a way I mean it's all about his addiction and all about his kind of downfall and all yeah, about yeah. this you know yeah. the society stuff with Warhol and it's like you know it, he was just a, at heart as you say a, just a, an amazing painter a great draftsman a really great draftsman you know I mean mm. this is proper painting it's not some savage because again he's slightly presented as this sort of some sort of savagery came out from underneath New York to kind of knock everyone out this way. He was a genuinely, in every sense of the word, good painter. And I think that really gets lost. 
All right, I'll stop shouting now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's 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 Basquiat. Well yeah. worth a read that that piece. I guess it's not worth noting the reason we added it is it goes talks in detail about Keith Richards and and kind of so there's the music link yeah. there, talking about you know actually relates to to Janice as well about heroin and how heroin sometimes facilitates but then kind of cuts off at, at vital moments and leaves people totally isolated. Of course, Bokris wrote a biography, wrote a biography of Keith, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yes. Lastly, on a lighter note, last Christmas I gave you my chart, Caroline Sullivan in the Guardian in two thousand and three about Christmas singles. And Caroline Sullivan is appalled by this year's efforts for the Christmas number one, but finds some consolation in the thought that next year the singles chart, as we know it, will be consigned to history because that was the last year when it was just made up of sales only. And then it was going to combine sales, airplay and internet downloads, that newfangled thing in 2003, 2004. So what seasonal fare will benefit? It's easy to work it out, even 12 months in advance, as nobody except 14-year-old boys have the slightest idea how to find music on the internet and no ipods don't make it any easier the christmas 2004 number one will be by 100 reasons funeral for a friend or some other bunch of kerrang endorsed honkers enjoy it's just very funny i just wanted to mention that on a sort of seasonal note happy holidays everyone (laughs) thank you that's a lovely way to end the episode and of course, you guys have someone named Holly on the ah, show for this perfect. particular episode too. Come on, indeed, yes, indeed. come on. We, sh- we should have got someone called Ivy as well. We should have deck the halls, <laughs> baby, deck the yeah. halls. Yeah, totally. with bowels of Holly. Yeah. Have, the rest of us should have been in the Ivy drinking and eating <laughs> whilst talking to Holly, and we'd have been there. Yeah. <laughs> well, Holly, thank you for joining us. And here, actually, wait, here I'll show you my oh. tree. Oh, wonderful! Can you well, see it? Oh, uh, you're showing us the You're just showing us a coffee mug. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you see it? Just ro- oh, oh, yes. Okay. Good. Yep. Yes. Yes. Nice. We've only just got a few of the lights on and only one decoration so far. We've, we've had a very busy past week or two. But there's supposedly a Christmas tree shortage in America this year. So oh, disaster. Everybody had, even up in the upstate New York where there's lots of Christmas trees everywhere, you had to, everyone was recommended to go out and get their tree as soon as possible for there were no more trees oh, to be had. Wow. Oh, my Unless gosh. you took an axe and chopped one down in New York, yeah. which of course you could do, which my dad did always growing up. They always chopped down. Oh, okay. Well, that's fantastic. Well, you know, happy holidays to everybody. Mark, would you kindly talk us out with the last and third clip from the yes, audio? If, if I can actually remember what it was. Hold on. <laughs> or, or who it was. Have you been drinking eggnog? I wish. If it was only just eggnog. Yeah, go on. It's the most disgusting drink on earth. <laughs> it's about Cheap Thrills and about Peace of My Heart, Bull and Chain and, oh. and the songs that they played. Great. Beautiful. We will be back in the new year, God willing, with Pete Wingfield, 18 with a bullet, coming into our Hammersmith offices. But we'll have to see what the status of Omicron is at that point. Yeah, right. But we're hoping very much that we get to... to Sing 18 with a bullet with Pete. Holly. <laughs> no, no, thanks no, one wants, no one wants no, us to no, do no, that. No, okay. All right, all right. Go out and buy Holly's fantastic Janice Joplin, but yeah, also, her, also her Alex Chilton book, which is a fantastic book, A Man Called Destruction, and all her other great works. That's it. We'll see you in 2022. Thanks again, Holly. Thanks Enjoy so much, Holly. It. I love gabbing with you guys. Have fun. Have a good holiday. Bye, Bye. everyone. Where did um, Peace of My Heart come from? You know who suggested it? Okay, uh, 
Jack Cassidy turned us on to Irma, that Irma Franklin oh, record, no version of that, yeah, the Jerry Regular song. Uh-huh. Yeah, we just liked it, you know. We, do, we, you know. we got really put down by Elton John and that book on 25 Years of Rock. Pete Green was involved in yeah. the book about a couple years ago. He did the uh, forward of it, you know, and he was, he pretty put us down for covering it. A song that was so well done. Well, it was well done. Irma Franklin did a fantastic version of it. We just did our version of it. You know, and, uh, uh, unfortunately, most of the songs on Cheap Girls are cover material. Ball and Chain, that's a good example. Uh, Summertime, uh, Peace of My Heart. All the ones that were, were, were popular were cover songs. That was Peter Alvin in conversation with Gene Scalati and Davin Say in 1984, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Holly George Warren. Please visit her website hollygeorgewarren.com for details about her books, including Janice, Her Life and Music. The hosts were Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rockbackpages.com. Happy holidays! Yeah.